Okay, guys. Looks like we are full house now. So, good afternoon and welcome to the ninth annual Women's History Month Literary Festival. It's great to see all of you, and I am praising the Sun Goddess for being really kind to us today. I want to thank Judy Cooper and Teresa Edmonds and all of the staff at Enoch Pratt, Joy Bramble and the Baltimore Times, the Ivy Bookshop, WEAA, the Mark Steiner Show, and Steve Sean Yo's show, Donna Owens, Andrea Lewis, and the Maryland Center for the Book, Maggie Linton at SiriusXM Radio, Ella Curry at EDC Creations, the Network Journal, the Center for Black Literature, the Baltimore Sun, AALBC.com, Elizabeth, Lolita, LaShonda, and of course you, you fabulous, book-loving, crazy people. Yay! We celebrate International Women's History Month and the work and writing of three powerhouse wordsmiths. The National Women's History Project's 2015 theme for National Women's History Month is weaving the stories of women's lives. We gather each year, right here at Enoch Pratt, this is, this is the ninth year we've done this, so we're way ahead of what their theme is. We do to, to celebrate, to rejoice, to reveal, and share with each other the stories and narratives of the passionate writers who grace this stage. They will inspire and encourage you. The gorgeous librettos composed by these exceptional women will incite you and instigate big change. We are roused to be bold, and we dare to dream, all of us, boys and girls, men and women. We draw strength and insight from those women who come before us and the remarkable women writing today. Much like Elizabeth Alexander demonstrates in her compelling memoir, The Light of the World, the sharing of her life with the artist, chef, lover, and husband, the late Fikre Gebreyesus, this spirit, her most exquisite love story of family and light, truth and art, in this space of loss and remembrance, the serenity and clarity of Elizabeth Alexander's prose and thoughts bring to mind the acclaimed novelist, poet, and essayist, who is considered by many as one of the most important contemporary Native American writers, Leslie Maman Silko. She said, the most effective political statement I can make is in my artwork. The most radical kind of politics is language as plain truth. The lyrical robust jam on the vine is LaShonda Catrice Barnett's debut novel. It's the late 1800s in Central East Texas. This powerfully loving and stable family gives life to a brilliant and stable daughter, Ivo Williams, who becomes one of Jim Crow's biggest adversaries. Her courage, her writing, and her printing press, absolutely formidable. This woman, a black woman, college educated, and very much like the self-described black lesbian warrior poet, Audre Lorde, who said, I write for those women who do not speak, for those who do not have a voice, because they were so terrified, because we are taught to respect fear more than ourselves. We've been taught that silence would save us, but it won't. The evocative Southern independent booksellers pick for one book, one South, Citizens Creek by Lolita Tatamy is an epic masterpiece inspired by a true story of a man born into slavery and sold as a young child to a Creek Indian chief. 
It's the heartbreaking, triumphant, and revealing tale of family, land, and legacy. Cal Tom, master of many languages and a proud race man, inculcates his granddaughter Rose with his heaven and earth. He becomes the first Black Creek Indian chief after the Civil War. The novelist, editor, professor, and Nobel Prize recipient, Toni Morrison, said black people have a story, and that story has to be heard. There was an articulate literature before there was a print. There were griots. They memorized it. People heard it. It is important that there is sound in my books, that you can hear it, and that I can hear it. Professor Elizabeth Alexander is a poet, essayist, playwright, and teacher. In 2009, she composed and delivered praise song for the day for the inauguration of President Barack Obama. She has published six books of poems, two collections of essays, and a play. Professor Alexander is currently a chancellor of the American Academy of American Poets and the, the inaugural Frederick Eastman Professor of Poetry at Yale University. Her upcoming memoir, The Light of the World, will be released next month. LaShonda Catrice Barnett, twice nominated for the 2015 Pushcart Prize, is a Kansas City, Missouri native. She's a lover and scholar of music of the African diaspora. Professor Barnett has taught history and literature at Columbia University, Sarah Lawrence College, Hunter College, and Brown University. She has edited three books about music, written short stories, a trilogy of play, and in her spare time is a host, WBAI jazz radio show. She writes full-time at her home in New York City. Lolita Tatamy is the New York Times best-selling author of, author of three historical novels, Cane River, Red River, and Citizen's Creek. Her debut, Cane River, was an Oprah book pick, translated into 11 languages, and became San Francisco's One City, One Book in 2007. Stanford University recently selected Cane River as a sign reading for all incoming freshmen. That happened this year. <laughs> Before writing full-time, Lolita was a hugely successful vice president and GM of several high-tech companies in the Silicon Valley. Lolita lives in Northern California with her husband. So to get this party started, let's talk about language, that, that magical, enchanted place, and all that it conjures as that vehicle to voice dissent, a place to connect the goings-on for many, the impact, the genesis of narrative, and a place to convey a justly told story, or maybe to right a wrong, or just to enlighten folks. Lalita, Elizabeth, and LaShonda share with us the roots of language, how you see it, how you feel it, how you play with it, as it, re as it relates to your current work. Um, Elizabeth Alexander. Lashida, Lash, Lashonda Catrice Barnett and Lalita Tatami. Well, the poet should go first. Right? <laughs> <laughs> okay, the poet will go first. Well, um, first, thank you all for coming out today. Thank you to Linda Duggins for bringing us together. And I am so excited to be with these amazing writers. One of the beautiful thing about belonging to this fellowship of the word um, is when we get to come out of our little writing nooks and see each other and share ideas and energies uh, and words. So I'm really happy to be with you both. Um, so I think, you know, 
The word is what we have. The word is who we are. The word starts in the body. The word is how we communicate across the void to say, I am human and this is who I am. I think it's as basic and as profound as that. Language is how human beings meet each other. Language is also how human beings meet each other across difference, which is why I think starting from a place of poetry, but that is also the place that all careful writers share, the precision of the words that we choose is of utmost importance because that is the way that we say fundamentally, soulfully, this is who I am. So the word is sacred. LaShonda? Toni Morrison said that death is the inevitable outcome of life, but language might be the reason for living. Mm. And I tend to agree with her because it is in language that we, uh, as Professor Alexander said, that we communicate who we are, why we're here, and our reasons for living. Regarding my own work, uh, Jam on the Vine, it's interesting. I was thinking about this when... uh, Linda proposed the question because I had written the first draft of Jam in dialect and then went at the last minute before I turned it into my agent, went through and put everything in the King's English after the King's English, let me put quotes around that, Mm. after being challenged by a good friend of mine who's a writer who who said to me, um, she she felt that in certain places that uh, dialect had slowed down the story and what was my purpose and I got very defensive and I said I was paying homage to Zora Neale Hurston and to Paul Lawrence Dunbar and to all these brilliant writers who were capturing um, the phonetic beauty of of African-American language and she said, well, you know, cadence has nothing to do with funny spellings and she put, you know, funny in quotes and I challenged her on that but then she said, you know, do me a favor and take a page of your novel and just write it over in the King's English and tell me if uh, the syntax or if the cadence is different if you put it in the King's English. And she was absolutely right. It wasn't. And so I, uh, at the last minute, took all of the dialect out because what, what um, she really sort of pushed me to do in her uh, inquisition of my, my usage of, of dialect was to focus on syntax and to focus on meter, on on rhythm, and as she said, that was not contingent on uh, different spellings for for words that we are all accustomed to to spelling a particular way. Um, James Baldwin said that he he imagined himself, or he tried to emulate jazz musicians most when he wrote. And I feel a very strong kinship with that comment because I'm always very moved by novelists who can, in, in telling the story, in telling these long passages that are full of dialogue with, with multiple characters, they drop out who said what. There are no directives given. And you don't miss them. You don't need them. Because the novelist has worked so hard in investing personality into everybody's speech that you know who's saying what. And so that was one of, the, one of the challenges that I imposed on myself while I was writing Jam. I do that a lot throughout the book. There was no mama said, papa said, or who said, because you don't need it. You know simply by the, the character that's in the language. As if you would be at a jazz jam session, you wouldn't need any help discerning the trumpet from a clarinet or a trombone. All of those instrumental voices are very distinct 
And so that's how I play, to borrow from your question, that's how I play with language mm -hmm. in the book, to make each voice so powerful enough that readers wouldn't need to have directives on mm -hmm. who's speaking. As a historical novelist, um, I am, uh, I, back before I ever wrote my first book, I was often taken by the power of words, and especially by the power of words to define things that had happened in the past. And history was defined by the victor. It was articulated, it was shaped, it was, it was absorbed as something other than what was the actual truth of the time. And so for me, playing with words is really um, about point of view. And it's about bringing a different point of view with those same words, but putting them in a different context and trying to get more at truth. Um, I know that uh, my protagonist, one of my main protagonists in my most recent book, is a translator. Uh, he mm -hmm. translates between uh, in a Creek Indian tribe and the U.S. government. Uh, one doesn't speak English, the other doesn't speak Creek. And so he finds himself in a position of power in being the intermediary between the two when they're trying to hammer out treaties. And words are important in understanding those words and um, interpreting those words is important. So in playing with words, when I was writing my first novel, Cane River, uh, Cane River is a real place in Louisiana. And I would actually go to Louisiana and I would just walk up and down the river and talk to random people. And they thought that I was all about their stories and I was listening. Mm -hmm. But I wasn't really listening to their stories. I was listening to how they talked. I was listening to how they organized their thoughts and how they tried to articulate those thoughts to me and tried to reflect that in the writing. And again, this is about authenticity and bringing a different point of view. Mm -hmm. Is there a, a difference or, or not between telling a story and storytelling? I guess if I, if I think about uh, those two terms, storytelling feels to me like it's referring to something not just historical, something ancient, mm -hmm. uh, something human, something eternal, uh, something that human beings across time and place forever have done, storytelling. Mm -hmm. And I think that within that storytelling, again, it's one of the ways that not only are we human to each other, not only do we care for each other, if you think about storytelling across generations, storytelling to children, but it's also one of the ways that we say this is who we are and we're not going to forget who we are. So, you know, uh, in the, the, the West African griot sense of a people defining itself and holding libraries worth of, of history in the story. Um, I think that, that that practice must be something that, that people need to do in some kind of way. Um, I think of telling a story um, as uh, being more uh, an isolated activity that can be repeated over and over again. Uh, I tell you a story, I tell you a story, you tell me a story. Um, but when you add it all up, it becomes you know, the great, long, historical, human continuum of storytelling. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, I just made that up, but I think that no, that sounds... No, but, <laughs> but that, that's a real good made well, up. Okay, good. What she said. What, say? what she I said. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> we figured it out. <laughs> so how did this love of, of writing begin for you? I mean, I'm always amazed. I mean, you folks know I'm a publicist. I work with books all the time. I talk about books all the time. I absolutely love this. Um, I'm a closet little journal writer, but I'm curious... Where does this come from? I'm, I'm going to start here because I don't love it. Um, <laughs> let's just be really clear. It is hard work. It is sitting down day after day, and it's hard work. I do love the outcome. I do love having something that represents something I'm trying to say um, that I can share with other people. But in terms of the love of writing, it is... Uh, difficult to go into therapy every day and look mm -hmm. at that blank page uh, and try to create something from nothing. So, yes, don't love it, but love the result. Okay. Mm -hmm. I agree with Lolita. I think it's really difficult work, and I sort of, I came to it very young. I fell in love with writing when I was eight. I won a short story contest on whales, writing about whales. It was 83. <laughs> Reagan was in office, and he was, you know, instead of paying attention to economics, was really pontificating about saving whales, and so everybody in my school district had to write about whales. <laughs> and I won uh, first place, and I just kept going, and I, I won like 13 short story contests between fourth and sixth grade. Uh, I knew enough not to pursue an MFA, and I look back at that, and that's a whole other story, and I'll talk to people about it afterwards if it, come, if it, if it comes up. Um, but I've known I was a storyteller for uh, a long time, and it is hard work, but I really do love it. And I push myself on that love because Jam was finished about six years ago, and I had a hard time selling it, and I thought to myself, well... If you're really a writer, and if you haven't been deluding yourself all of these years, then you'll keep on writing. And I did. There are two other novels that are already done. There's the short story collection already done. The short story collection's coming out next year. The second novel's coming out in 2017. The third novel's coming out in 2018. And so I've, I've proved to myself, I had to prove to myself that I loved it by showing up even when there was no money on the table even when uh, people were not calling and there, was, there wasn't the big auction that I had dreamed about and the, and the article in the New York Times because I got half a million for my first book. None of that happened. And so I thought, okay, well, well, well now you get to prove to yourself who you are. And uh, that said, uh, I know I love it. You, you love it when you show up and there's no money. Mm -hmm. so. mm. But it's hard work. It really is. Well, yeah, it is. And starting um, in in poetry, there's even really, 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 really less no money. I mean, there, you know, there, 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 there's not even a hope of that auction. You know, that, no, none of that happens. But I always say it keeps us pure because uh, because that you know you, because you do it because you have to do it because you keep doing it and because maybe this is is some gift that we each have our gift. And that, you know, it's important to nurture that gift. Uh, to echo the difficulty of it, um, uh, you know, I think having written is very different from writing. Uh, so uh, I'm, I'm just echoing what's been said. Um, it's, 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 it's a struggle. Um, but it should be a struggle. 
which is why I respect and love and try to find ways to support the work of other artists. Asking artists to go deep within, to go, you know, to use the, the phrase from the poet Adrian Rich, diving into the wreck, and to bring something back out again. She said, I want the thing itself. I want the wreck, not the story of the wreck. I want the mm-hmm. thing itself. So if that's what we expect from our artists, you know, that is, that is tough work. So uh, as a, a consumer of art, as a consumer of literature as well, um, uh, I always feel it's important to um, respect and revere and take care uh, of artists in that particular way. Um, I think that um, when I have a friend who is a singer who told me when her mother passed and she sang at her mother's funeral, she said, not until that moment did I know what it truly meant to sing. Hmm. Because then her gift, her voice, had a profound purpose that was immediate and that was as deep as it could possibly get. There was a reason to open her voice and sing in that darkest hour. And so I think that while I've been um, devoted to my writing for uh, over 25 years now, um, that with this latest um, work, uh, which is my first memoir, which uh, comes out of the very sudden and unexpected passing of my husband, I feel that I now know what I have these words for. Because the word and writing, as difficult, difficult not even the word, you know, as wrenching as it was, it was my companion through grief. And it helped me take one step after the other, just as also walking through grief, the music and the poetry especially of others was my companion. Mm -hmm. So that's what I've learned um, in the process of making this latest book. And Elizabeth, with that said, the, the impetus for writing this memoir, did it shift how you ordinarily wrote? I know the poetry is one thing, the prose is another thing, but I know you looked at it quite kind of similarly. I'm just curious for all of you, but right now for you, Elizabeth? Um, yes, well, um, I think, you know, I, I, I write nonfiction prose about African-American culture. Um, so that's the, that's the kind of nonfiction I've written in the past. And I always felt that my poetry came from the bottom up, that my poetry came from the body from the bottom up, and that my nonfiction came from the head out. Um, and what I found with this was it began in the same place that poetry began. And the book is written in very, 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 very small, intense chapters. They are not prose poems, though. And that what was, was, what was so interesting about the process that you don't know until you get into the process. I would just write. And I knew that it was visceral. And eventually, when I had a pile of these little things that I didn't know what they were, I looked at them together and I thought, oh, these can be put together into something larger. So it was a very, very unique experience, um, but a wonderful one to think that what I consider to be the the poetry place could also give birth to something else. Mm-hmm. Lolita, that your, your process for writing? Um, yeah, um, I... <laughs> You know, it's really funny. I've I've done three novels now, and they're historical novels. They're multi generational sagas. The first two are based on my own family. The third is not, but it is based on a family, a granddaughter, 
a, a granddaughter and a grandfather. Um, and what I find is that what is most interesting to me and most elusive, I don't know if I'll ever be able to master this, is I have a desire to come current. I have a desire to not write about history, but to write about uh, current day, or at least not in the 1800s, um, <laughs> at least more current day. And it's not clear to me whether that is within my grasp or not, and I'm struggling with that right now. But what is what has sustained me up until now and what has been the most interesting to me and what I wanted to explore was how um, our common legacies affect us over the generations and to see generation after generation uh, and how a decision made 50, 100 years before affects someone in that same family over mm -hmm. time a hundred years later. Um, that has always been of interest to me. And I know when I started Citizens Creek, my intent um, actually in the beginning was to have a, a current day base and then to look back on these people. And I threw away all the current people. Hmm. And I ended up just living it as if it was historical starting in the 1800s and ending in the early 1900s. So my process, or at least my subject matter, um, is evolving, and I'm just not sure where it's going. Okay. That's cool. Shonda? Well, I really love the beautiful phrase that Elizabeth used, uh, companion of grief. That's actually part and parcel of how jam started for me. I was in uh, graduate school. I was reading for comps when I first started to outline the book, and I had discovered all of these amazing African-American history texts and was quite angry that, that I didn't know an iota of that information, that I had matriculated K through 12 and, and just had been kept a stranger to all of this really profoundly rich African-American history. So I was grieving for my ancestors, grieving for our nation, the fact that we know so little about its inhabitants, truth be told. And I don't mean just black people. I mean all of the groups that uh, we have worked to push to the periphery. So there was that grief. Uh, then I lost my grandmother, who was my, who was the hand I fan with. Mm. And um, she was a Texan, a very proud Texan. My matrilineal lineage uh, hails from Central East Texas, where the first half of the book unfolds. And I was frightened for myself and frightened for my family, losing this anchor. And uh, one of the things that I find so scary about grief, grief is frightening, is that you, every day that you live beyond the loved one that you've lost, that you stand to forget. You, you stand to forget or misremember. Memory is idiosyncratic. And I didn't want to forget my grandmother. And so uh, the first character that came to me is not the main character. It's the main character's mother, Lemon, who is kind of my grandmother. And I just started writing down all these lovely witticisms that Big Mama had and um, her, her recipes found their way into the book. I just wanted something uh, to ensure, and I knew I would finish the book starting out because even if I didn't write any other novels, I knew I'd finish this one because I wanted to capture my grandmother, both for myself and also for my family. And I wanted to pay homage to the black press, which I think is an unsung mm -hmm. hero of African-America. So I had a lot at stake. And then when this book finished, 
and uh, I moved to New York and was trying to do the academic thing, it occurred to me that I was still sort of carrying some grief. And that's when I committed to writing historical novels. An interview, uh, an interviewee a couple weeks ago said, well, isn't it difficult mining African-American history? A lot of it is tragic and dark. And mining African-American history is a very, a very emotive experience. It, it can be very, very difficult. I made some choices in the book, like I didn't want to write too much about lynching. I could not for my mental health, even though the book unfolds in the Jim Crow period. But that said, I said to the interviewer, and I'll say here, I think it is an honor and a privilege. My ancestors got a raw deal when they were on the planet. And if I can go back into the history and rewrite it a different way, what a privilege. So it's heavy, but I'm called to do it. And uh, I, I won't play it down for anything in the world. It is such an honor to be able to go into the archives and rescue from obscurity uh, black history. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> you know, one, one of the many central themes in all of the books um, was this amazing, through, through all the, the triumph and pain and misery, was the, the tightness of the families and the food. <laughs> and believe it or not, folks, I could probably out-eat all of y'all. <laughs> I love it. When I read these books, you know, in between the tears and the laughter, I said, mm, I gotta try that recipe. Oh, really? How's that jam taste? <laughs> Just curious, how did you bring that to... St- I mean, it, it's, it's love to me. So... Share with us your, your take on the food. Yes, yes. My husband was a, a, a chef and a painter, and uh, he fed us with love. Uh, the people in my family cooked some food, and that was always <laughs> how I knew uh, not all only that I was loved, and I'm sure so many of us share this, but that, that was, I think, the first way I understood who I was culturally. Um, that was probably the first marker that felt relevant uh, of African Americanness. You know what we ate on New Year's Day: the can of bacon greased by the stove. Which I said to my mother one day. You know, then it was gone because you know everybody tried to get healthy. So I said, "Mommy, what happened to the can of bacon grease?" And she said, "Oh no, honey, we can't eat like that anymore." <laughs> uh, we could collect bacon grease stories, I'm sure. Um, but you know, the the artfulness with which, and now I have two two sons uh, who are 15 and 16, and feeding them is how I show them what they come from and how I show them that I love them. And it is also an act that is completed that has meaning, uh, that helps us stay alive, which if you think about the resonance for that in a, a, an African diaspora continuum, uh, is very, very profound. That in African-American cooking, as we all know, you know, from the scraps and the leftovers and from privation, that we made the cuisine that everybody wants to eat. I mean, you know, that is extraordinary, and that is also can be expanded as a larger metaphor for the incredible resourcefulness of our culture, of our music, of our art of all kinds, and for the art of living. So um, when I wrote, and I was really, um, uh, uh, I felt very resonant with what you were saying about your grandmother and trying to write about her, you know, before those traces slip through your fingers, and I knew I could never forget my beloved, but I did know that being absolutely careful and writing would help fix 
what I knew, and that it was also, frankly, a way and a very profound way to be with him. So uh, in writing about the food that he made, he was from Eritrea uh, in East Africa, and he made extraordinary, beautiful food that was related to our food and different as well. Red lentils were the legume that he usually made. He would make it with injera instead of with rice, as we might have made it in my family. And we, and we liked the foods of the world, you know, and, and that very much affected how we fed each other. Uh, and we cared very, very much about being healthy. And that affected and was one of the ways that we showed our love to each other and to everyone who came into our home living in a home, and the way I wanted my children to grow up was with a big open table where whatever was on the stove, there could always be extra. There could, it could always be stretched for a last-minute visitor. That seemed to me to be the profoundest, uh, human is my word for today, uh, human thing that we could teach our children about what it means to be in a community that's spread out but that comes together around the table. So um, I think in a lot of my poems, there um, food makes it makes its way in too. Um, but I think that what I had an opportunity to do in, in this book of prose was actually include recipes, and there was no better way to express who he was, who we were, who we are, and what came together culturally from the African diaspora in our, our our lives. Foodie number two. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I said that my grandmother, my grandmother was a cook. She was an amazing cook. She was a cook professionally, and she was the cook that everybody called in the family when they needed help uh, navigating a recipe. And she started teaching me to cook. She called me to the stove at seven. Mm. And uh, although she passed uh, in 01, it's now 2015, I think of her every day. I think of her every day that I go into the kitchen, and so uh, the character Lemon uh, makes jams to keep her family afloat. She makes tomato jams and chow chow relish, which is a, which is a southern uh, dish, uh, but there's also a character in the book who is African-American and Seminole, and so she, she makes some, some recipes that are inspired from Native American food ways. Um, half of Ivo's family is Muslim, and so I thought it would be really interesting to, to play with and to shine a light on recipes that weren't around pork, since uh, the, this relationship between black folks and pork has mm -hmm. been drawn indelibly. I thought, well, you know, not for this particular family, because <laughs> half of them are Muslim. So uh, I wanted to highlight the recipes that my grandmother cooked, but also the recipes that a lot of our ancestors uh, made. And what gave me particular delight in including them in the story is that if people wanted to make them today, they could do so on a shoestring budget. Mm -hmm. I was very sort of conscious of that and giving the character, bequeathing her joy when she made cracker pudding, which is really easy. Mm -hmm. Crackers and cream and a little, little butter or, or when she made a chess pie. Mm -hmm. And a chess pie is so easy to make, but it is so delicious. Uh, the joy of a very simple custard pie that you could make for under ten dollars. I reveled, I reveled in that to show that this family, although impoverished materially speaking, they they uh, they have such joy and they have such love. And the the matriarch of the family, it's how it's how she manifested her love for her family, even though they didn't have lots of money. Mm -hmm. so. 
Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, uh, I've written three novels, and they're all about family, and it would be inconceivable of me to think that you could write something about a family and not have food at the center of it somehow. Mm-hmm. The, the thing that sets me a bit apart from, from you, and I'm inspired by both of your answers, is I just don't cook. So, so I can write about it. I don't necessarily, and I saw it, and I loved it, and I ate it, and I felt that that communal, wonderful nourishment. But when it came time, for example, I had a lot of food in in my first book, Cane River. I had a lot of family uh, around the table dinners. There was a Sunday dinner. And it was the things that you would expect that we would have in Louisiana around a, a Sunday uh, dinner. And one of them was a, um, was a peach uh, cobbler. And I, and I actually uh, had someone who was doing a cookbook contact me after the book had been out for a while to say, we really want to include the Cane River peach cobbler in our cookbook. <laughs> and I'm saying, hmm. So I picked up the phone and I called my sister and said, can, can you, who cooks? <laughs> <laughs> She's the cook. <laughs> I don't cook. I ask her if I want something. <laughs> and I asked her and she spent actually weeks just at making the perfect wow. peach cobbler recipe, trying What's her phone number? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's <Yeah>. perfect. <laughs> and that's her daughter right there. <laughs> but, but, it's, but I think that that is so integral to what a family is and what the, what the rituals are in a family and how uh, a family is trying to nourish not only our bodies but our souls. And what was mm-hmm. interesting in Citizens Creek, which is, um, the creek is not a river, it's actually an Indian tribe. Um, mm-hmm. But what was, what was very interesting about food here is that it was the blending of Native American um, and African American, and I had to learn a whole new set of food groups mm-hmm. and, uh, and food recipes and those things that are cherished. And so going down, um, and grabbing uh, a big jar of cha-cha cabbage was a big deal. Um, grinding up the corn was a big deal. And, and I think that the act of feeding is just as important as what the food itself is. Mm-hmm. Before I ask all of you to, to read a little bit from your book, there, there's lots of central themes in the book, but the whole idea with Eric Gardner in Staten Island, Mike Brown in Ferguson, and the land issues in Jam on the Vine, Citizens Creek, and the Light of the World. Elizabeth and your, your, you and your husband from East Africa to your ancestry, that whole issue of land, the remove, removing the Native Americans from their land to now we will call it the reservations, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That whole idea of land and land ownership, we're still having that struggle, in my mind, on a lot of different levels. Talk about that significance of land in the stories. So, um, 
the land figures very land figures in some different ways mm. in Citizens Creek than uh, than I had initially thought of it. Uh, and again, this is the intersection of two cultures: the the Native American culture and the African uh, American slave culture at the time, and then after the Civil War, just African American culture. But land figured in very important ways uh, where the uh, Native Americans were moved off of their land in the early, in the 1830s because the government wanted that land. And the Creeks who were in Alabama were removed. They were paid something, but they were paid as a tribe. There was no individual ownership, really. You own things as a tribe. And so when they went, when they were removed from their land and removed along the Trail of Tears into Indian territory that ultimately became Oklahoma, they took their property with them, and their property included their slaves. So uh, it, it was losing multiple times. It was losing uh, everything you owned, but you suddenly were transported from one piece of land to a different and less hospitable piece of land because you weren't going to get the best. You were, the best was going to be taken from you and then you were going to be moved from it. So land figured very, very prominently and over the course of history, over the course of time between the early 1800s and the early 1900s, this land was actually uh, divided up and given on an individual basis. And the, the thing that I did not know before I started doing research for this book is that the single largest land distribution back into black hands was to native, was to the freedmen of Native Americans. It was formerly owned slaves. It was the freedmen who got a piece of land. It wasn't the 60 acres in a mule. It was over 100 acres um, that they got. Most of them held it for a very short period of time before it was um, taken away from them again through uh, trickery or um, through violence or how, however it needed to be done. But all of this was fighting over the most precious thing there was um, and that was the land itself. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. Mm. I, I don't think, I, I was thinking about land as a theme or, or trope, but I knew, again, back to my grandmother, she was such a naturalistic woman, and I grew up with all these wonderful stories of her swimming in creeks and riding horses in Texas, and I could not relate as a child born in Kansas City and who grew up outside of Chicago and as an adult who was making her home in Manhattan. Uh, so I thought that I would have fun with sort of um, singing the praises of black folk and, and natural surroundings. So it's celebratory in the beginning of the novel, but it, what happens is um, a prison farm comes to the community in where my protagonist lives. And uh, symbolically, she, she takes on the, with her newspaper in the second half of the book, the disproportionate incarceration of African-American men, which I know we sort of tend to think of as modern phenomenon of the last 30 or 40 years, but it has roots in post-Reconstruction America. This has been a crisis for over 150 years. And so um, I vow 
literally sees her whole community fall apart because their land uh, is taken so that they can uh, expand the prison farm, grow more cotton, lease convict labor to pick the cotton. And in that way, I'm, I'm showing how metaphorically and literally prisons have disjointed African-American families. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that um, <clears throat> one of the things that was very interesting to me when I first met Fikre, coming from, um, from Eritrea, is that he had such a profoundly grounded sense of what it meant to come from particular land. The land he came from had been in his family for literally countless generations. But then, when uh, an unresolved civil war ravaged the nation, one by one, they had to leave that land. Then, the leadership changed, and the land that had been in their family for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years was nationalized. And they built a parking lot, and it was just gone. There was nothing that they could do about it. So he came to the United States as a refugee via Sudan, uh, Italy, Germany, and then to the United States as a person who was immediately displaced from something ancient, but also someone who was in his bones profoundly landed. As an African-American person, I found that almost alien and fascinating. I knew and could claim many different strands of my black history, including Creeks and Cherokees who didn't leave but became black, uh, if you will, uh, and people from Tuskegee and from Selma and from, uh, you know, from Jamaica and from all over. I knew what all of those pieces were, but I also knew that I couldn't take it any further, as most of us cannot, to the African continent. And I knew that that was the way it was, that we were fundamentally characterized by uh, dispossession, but I think very, very crucially, recombination in new spaces. I think that is the resilience of black people, that we are uprooted and yet somehow we still find roots and make roots. And you mentioned uh, Eric Garner and, and Michael Brown and, and you know, all of uh, the, the, the crises and violations that we're dealing with right now. And why I think that's very interesting and applicable is given, if we want to say that African Americans are fundamentally pieced together from many strands, what does it mean to understand ourselves as black with common cause? What does it mean to join together and understand ourselves as commonly rooted, even if uprooting is what most of our families have been through? And that's, a, that's an open question. Um, well, do you want to read a little bit from the book now? <clears throat> okay, this is a reading, and um, it's uh, this is the short. <laughs> Um, this, this comes, uh, Citizens Creek is actually divided into two parts. The first is uh, about Cow Tom, who was, became uh, the first Creek, Black Creek Indian chief, and then his granddaughter Rose, who um, was destined, it seemed, to be a spinster at age 28, but then she um, met this 
amazing man that came to her. He was 10 years younger. Um, he was 18. She was 28. They, uh, they ended up getting married. Her name is Rose. His name is Jake. And uh, he is a, he's a cow puncher. Um, he doesn't know how to read. She has just taught him how to read. Uh, and they are in the early time of their marriage. Rose watched Jake trace his finger under each line as he read the newspaper by lantern light, a slow and laborious procedure. Sometimes he moved his lips in determination as he sounded out a sentence until it fell into place. If they were alone, just he and Rose, he'd call out and ask her what a certain word meant, and Rose would drop whatever she was doing to answer. She considered these moments among her favorite times with her husband, but there were so many pieces of her life with him she cherished, she couldn't confine her joy to only one. Teaching him to read had taken years, not because he was slow, but because they had so little time left after the avalanche of building a life together. He'd been a good student once he settled into the process, putting in the effort no matter how tired he was. But in the years since they married, there were long stretches when reading had to take second place to all the other demands. Scrimping, saving, buying land, erecting a house, building a herd, cattle drives, crops, mending fences. Not to mention the children who came quickly, one after the next, two girls in as many years, more Rose's responsibility than Jake's, though they adored their father. As Jake promised Rose at their first meeting, they started a small ranch of their own, half a day's ride from Cane Creek, and managed in only a few years to grow and add improvements. House, barn, corral, fencing, garden. Cash money was always tight, but Jake often joked he could ride onto a stranger's ranch sometime in the late afternoon, stay overnight in an unwilling seller's barn or camped on the prairie, and by the next morning, have a handshake deal and cattle exchange with all parties smiling. Jake put aside the newspaper, closing his eyes and massaging the bridge of his nose. Reading by the flicker of lantern light took its toll. Say, Rose, Jake said, what say you and me go to church supper Sunday? That'd be all right, answered Rose. But I know something to make it better than all right. Hold on. Rose put aside her needlework. Jake was up to something, and sure enough, he disappeared into the back room and returned with a loaf-sized bundle wrapped in old newspaper. He presented the parcel to her, watching the expression on her face. Rose peeled back to the edges of the wrapping. Inside was a pair of high-top black leather shoes. Fancy. A curved row of covered buttons ran up the side, each in its own buttonhole, with a small sateen bow at each toe and dainty little heels. The shoes were so beautiful, Rose was almost afraid to touch them. She set them down carefully. Jake, so many things we need. We don't have money for this kind of foolishness. What were you thinking? What if the crop doesn't come in? Jake pulled back. I knew you'd fight me on this, he said. But I was thinking at time to take my but I was thinking at time my scrawny chicken shows the other ladies a thing or two. <laughs> In the beginning, years before, Rose had been sorry she told Jake about her mother's careless comments as she grew up, calling her a scrawny chicken. But somehow, Jake had turned the insult on its head, and when he called her scrawny chicken, she felt bigger and bolder and safer. Rose was Jake's scrawny chicken, 
his anchor, and Jake was her freewheeling cowboy. Surely you can take them back to the store and get our money, said Rose. I could, answered Jake, but I won't. He was working himself into a state. We've been squeezing every penny till there's nothing left, but this once, you're going to show out. You can wear them to church and whenever we visit Cane Creek, and you tell your mother I got them for you. If the gift were any other extravagance, Rose would have been able to resist easily, but shoes were her weakness. <laughs> Jake knew as much. Rose marrying Jake provided everyone an opportunity to be nicer to one another. Even her mother had come around, charmed by her daughter's new husband and then by the grandchildren as they appeared. Rose was happiest when Jake was home, but he was often gone away, chasing their fortune, buying or selling or both. That was his part of the bargain. Hers was to make a home for him to come back to. Home meant everything to him and to her. Who could have believed the two of them fit so hand in glove, mm. that the dead spots in her heart could soften and give rise to new bloom? Rose picked up the shoes again and ran her finger across the smooth surface of one of the sateen bows. She sniffed the leather, a raw, heady smell that filled her with satisfaction, and placed the pair in her lap, picking up her needlework again. It was impossible to imagine keeping such a firm hold on her book of dreams without Jake on every page. Hmm. Beautiful. So I'm just going to read from the beginning of Jam on the Vine. It's 1896, the cusp of the Spanish-American War, and a year after, Plessy versus Ferguson bequeaths us separate but equal. The name of the chapter is Juba. I've all liked to carry on about all she could do. Still, had a mend a broken promise had her beat. She had given her word not to go beyond the pantry, passing many dull hours there, while Mama finished her duties in the kitchen. At six, seven, eight, obedience was easy. The trouble with nine came when Miss Starks entered the kitchen to tell Mama the dinner menu. With her low, husky voice and tall, boyish frame, Miss Susan made a handsome woman. She had a moon face full of light freckles and cheeks that called to mind two perfect peaches. Her eyes and the creases that framed them crinkled up to slits whenever she smiled. Miss Susan laid the Starkville Enterprise on the table. I bet you can't read these headlines for me. Ivo hitched up her legs on the lower rung of the stool and cleared her throat. Germans no longer love us. Their sympathies are all on the side of Spain. And the Senate will have to yield on sugar and wool. A relieved smile drew across Mama's face as Miss Susan nodded contentedly. I suppose this means you're almost grown. Grown folks always read while they wait. Ivo wanted to tell Miss Susan the terrible job of waiting belonged mostly to children, and none of the children she knew owned anything to read. On a good day, Miss Susan left the paper behind while Mama cooked, but not today. Ivo sucked in her breath, ducked past her mother, and crept down the hall to the library, grateful for the crimson carpet between her broken shoes and the fine wood floors. The Starks had money, something to do with cattle, corn, and cotton. It was all around her in the books more numerous than the schoolhouse's stash, and better looking. After Maybell, Papa, and them, Ivo loved books best. Books were a friend to anyone who opened them. Blowing a whirligig to make the Searles go around, or talking up a storm to a corn husk doll, 
was all right for passing the time, but you never went anywhere new or met anyone special like you did in the pages of a book. In golden-haired Gertrude and old Mother Hubbard, she found steady companions and had traveled as far as Arabia without ever leaving little Tunis. How to get a book home was something I've all thought about a lot. Books were hard to steal. Books had to be carried. Books could not go missing in a house for too long a time. Newspapers were easy. She could slide one under her clothes and walk the half-mile home while its reader would think it mislaid. The scheme had worked plenty times before, but that day the newspaper was not in its usual place or on any shelf she could reach. She darted across the foyer and up the back staircase to Miss Susan's bedroom, where everything was dressed in some shade of yellow and smelled like honeysuckle. Swallowing was a chore with a dry mouth, and the drum in her chest thumped extra hard. How would it look, tiptoeing around where she had no business being? Crouching on the floor, she raised the bed skirt, dust. She shimmied open the top dresser drawer, nothing but fancy brooches and pearls. In the far corner, the marble top stand beside the chair caught her eye. Eureka! Or, as Mama would have said, if it had been a snake, it would have bit you. <laughs> she slipped the newspaper under her shirt, half of it cool against her chest, the other half snug between her britches and her underpants. She threw a kiss to Mama and flew through the kitchen door quicker than grass through a goose. Just the thought of reading made her run fast as her legs could carry her, beyond the gazebo, past the outbuildings at the edge of the yard. She trotted past the plantation bell to the narrow dirt road bounded on both sides by downy fields. Some of the flowers were still learning to be themselves. Three leaf stems like poison ivy held blossoms soon to burst open pink, pink, like the flesh of a watermelon. They would follow the sun, just like morning glories, to the field looked like a snowstorm hit it, all white and full of fluff. She waved to the white children from the Baptist orphanage, to the Negro children she wouldn't see at school until November, when cotton-picking season was done. She skirted the corn cribs, the mill house, minding her step along the steep slope of watermelons, ripening on the vine. At the bottom of the hill in the valley, subject to floods and the failing of trees, Ivo's home was jammed together with four dozen cabins on the worst land in Central East Texas. Nobody in Little Tunis lived like the Starks, who had too much of everything. Their homes, fronted by a yard of rocks or a cluttered chicken pen, sometimes both, held only the essentials, a table, chairs, a resting place. But you could tell by a cabin's kitchen who lived there. Down the road, Ivo knew she would find a banjo and tools for dying since the new couple made pretty music in indigo fabric. Across the way where Mr. James and his wife lived, a saw in a heaping laundry basket. The story of Ivo's family was found in the beads Mama held while praying, Papa's sledge and file, and the black dust his shoes carried in at the end of the day. Ivo ran through the yard, stopped to pluck a fig, bounded up the porch steps, and threw open the door, quiet enough to hear a mouse pee on cotton. She had beat her brother Timbo home. She yearned to spread the paper over the floor and draw her finger along every line of print under the amber sun, molten and gorgeous, pouring through the door like sorghum molasses. But instead, she slammed the door and dashed to her room. Whenever she rushed, Mama liked to say, hurry now makes worry later. Sometimes, though, it meant you could hide your treasure without anyone finding out. <laughs> So um, in writing a book about, about grief and loss and, and the meaning of that, um, I learned that you also had to write about love. Um, so I'm going to read just a few um, bits. 
We courted over six weeks in the summer of 1996. At the end of the first week, we decided to marry but told no one. They'll think we're crazy, we'd say. It's our secret, we were certain. We ate little, drank sweet cafecitos, and listened to Ahmad Jamal, Betty Carter, Abby Lincoln, Randy Weston, and Don Pullen, geniuses of the African diaspora we both celebrated. We wrote dozens of haikus back and forth in a shared notebook, and he nicknamed himself Basho in Africa. Basho wrote in the 17th century in Japan's Edo period and was thought to be the greatest practitioner of haiku, but he is even more renowned for leading others in renku, a collaborative linked verse poetry. No one had ever asked me to write poems together. How I researched tiny Eritrea when I first met him. How I practiced saying his name correctly. Fikre Gebre Jesus, playing his first answering machine message back over and over again to get it right. <laughs> How I opened myself to learn this brand new person from a brand new fascinating place. I came from the pig people, and he came from the cow and the sheep people. Some of my people were Midland slaves who made something from nothing and masses leavings. Some of my people were fancy and free. He came from forever free Christian Coptic Highlanders who alternate seasons of harvest bounty and Lenten veganism. That was the interesting idea of us. East and West Africa married, descendants of slaves who survived, descendants of free people of color, descendants of freedom fighters never enslaved, the strongest of all to be conjoined in our children. Sometimes we talked about this. But mostly we just talked, the deepest thoughts, the sweetest thoughts, the questions we had waited to ask forever. He was a bottomless boat and the boat that would always hold me. His teeth were straight, white, and bright without benefit of American orthodonture. In photograph, he disdained cheesing and set his lips firmly closed, but his smile was quick and shone full sunshine. He shaved his head on account of his receding hairline, and surely no one ever looked more beautiful bald brown like a chestnut, clear brown like topaz or buckwheat honey. Did you know that buckwheat is neither grass nor wheat and is closely related to rhubarb? I can hear him say. He was of medium build and trim, though he tended to a wee bit extra around the middle that I found lovely. His fitness was that of a man who worked on his feet and could do things. He was nimble and physically intelligent. He hoisted large objects and moved them, climbed up on ladders, crawled behind and under furniture, jerry-rigged solutions to household problems. Later, when we had a home together, he would often work in the garden all day in hot sun. He paced himself and never seemed to tire. You got yourself an African ox, baby, he'd say to me as he pushed a wheelbarrow full of rocky dirt he dug to clear a patch for growing. Nothing was out of place or excessive about him. He looked like one of several variations on an Abyssinian type, which is to say, large, wide-set eyes, broad, smooth forehead, a particular luminosity of his brown color, a carved nose. But he was, of course, only himself. His voice lilted across a pentatonic scale. How are you? D-sharp, C, G-sharp. There was chocolate in his voice, a depth, a bottom. In this still life, I have forgotten to say he was beautiful and utterly without vanity. His work was in kitchens and painting studios, so his everyday attire was t-shirts, jeans, and sneakers. He stood long hours and tried many different kinds of footwear, but always came back to sneakers. 
Later, after we were together, when I traveled to give readings and talks, I would bring him back the most unusual T-shirts I could find, which he loved for his daily uniform, La Brea Tar Pits, University of Transylvania soccer team, Watts Tower Community Arts Center, Stacks, Matthew Henson's brown face framed by a fur-lined parka. His studio was never adequately heated nor cooled, so when painting he would add on another shirt, a sweater, and his beloved grass-green fleece vest, often along with a bright wool scarf and knit cap to keep the heat in. When we went out on occasions, he wore vibrantly colored button-down shirts with his jeans, guayaberas or dashikis in the summer. Upon meeting him, one new friend commented, ooh, I love a man who isn't afraid of a pop of color. Pop of color became a phrase we loved to repeat, and certainly no man ever looked finer in hot pink. <laughs> we talked all day and all night for six weeks straight. He told me everything about life in Eritrea in his family's compound, describing his father with children climbing all over him, laughing, his mother carefully choosing spices or thread colors for embroidery or paint colors for their walls, and letting him jostle her elbow so more clarified butter would go into the stew. He and his siblings washing the feet of the nuns who came by their house on Easter pilgrimage. The censers swinging through the Coptic church dispersing frankincense smoke. The big-eyed icons in stained glass and the booming African drums making no mistake that this ancient Christianity was African. His reading the Italian newspapers aloud to his father, the Italian deco buildings of downtown Asmara, which remain the finest examples of that architectural style in the world the best gelato ever accompanying his beloved cinema, pronounced in Italian, in the Deco movie theater, his reverent love of the classroom and his teachers who cherished him, the day his teacher read his essay aloud and said, Bambini, this one among you shall become a great writer. His school chained shut the very next day as the Red Terror accelerated. Neighborhood friends disappeared without explanation, the angles of growing fear and life or death protection. During part of our six-week New Haven courtship, his three young nieces, Amal, Bana, and Aiden, visited from Nairobi in Northern Virginia. We drove them to Cape Cod and pretended they were our children, for they were, and they danced magic spells around us, blessing our union. He and I would drive into New York late at night after he'd finished his shifts at the restaurant, and on slow days, he'd take me to the places that were most important to him when he lived in New York as an impassioned activist, also beginning to paint at his up-down kitchen table. We visited the Art Students League, Bob Blackburn's printmaking workshop, and a performance of the Mingus Big Band. He loved to listen to fables of Phobos over and over again, its oompa loompa belying the sharp social commentary on the crumbling order of deep Jim Crow. We ate Italian food at a sidewalk cafe in the neighborhood he charmingly called the Soho. We walked to Veniero's pastry shop in the East Village for Milafolie and espresso. Then we drove home to New Haven, <clears throat> and here is one of dozens of small ways I knew I had met my love. Me, the inveterate backseat driver, began to fall asleep, safe with him at the wheel. I let go. It was perfectly quiet inside the car. And then I woke to a sentence he spoke, his rich, deep voice catching with emotion. Lizzie, he said, you have land in Africa. Mm. 
Gorgeous. All of you. Oh, my God. Um, what, what is the duty of the writer? I, I need to jump in before the intellectuals get to it. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I actually believe that the duty is to be true to yourself as the writer, um, which is, I, I doubt that's what you're going to say. No, but that's what it is. Um, I, I actually think that if you start out with a duty and say, uh, here's my propaganda hit that I'm going to, that I'm going to put out there, uh, at, at least for fiction, at least for what I do. Um, I want to do a good story. There will be themes in that story. There will be um, some points that maybe I'm trying to make, but probably not. And there will be a mm -hmm. lot of points that I do make, and I don't realize that I've made them until somebody tells me that that's what they got out of it, and it's not what my intent was necessarily. But I think that it's, it's being true to yourself and pushing a story as deep um, as you possibly can and as central to your own core and telling it in as interesting and compelling and in as, as engaging a way as you possibly can. Mm -hmm. I actually agree with you very much, Lalita. Oh. I was just going to say uh, I believe that successful writers write as they are. You bring yourself to the page. Um, for me, that also means because I am a history nut, I love history. I love going into to archives and putting on the white parade gloves and touching the material that is too fragile to be photocopied and to be put online. I love that stuff. I'm very happy there. And I love rescuing uh, these important figures from African-American history that will never find their way into a social studies book. They just won't, and that's a grief that I carry, but I can put them in a novel, and so I'm, I'm very much devoted to that. I, I'm a little bit afraid, personally, of a contemporary fiction. I just feel, and this might be um, my scholastic self, I just feel that I don't have enough time or vantage point to say anything really smart. And that's just me. That's my hang-up. So I, I find refuge in history, and I'm looking forward to I don't know what all of the novels will be, but I, I do know that they'll be sourced. I've, I've done three now. Well, I'm finishing the third right now, and they're all sourced from history, and I love it. I love the way it feels. It's, it's great work. But I think that Lalita made an extremely important point about the inauthenticity or the lack of organicness if you sort of sit down with your outline or sit down on page one and say, okay, I'm going to uh, have these themes present in the book, then it doesn't really feel like a story. And I really didn't want, I was very conscious of that because I started JAM right before I, I got my PhD and I did not want JAM to feel like a classroom. I had that choice. If I wanted to write a nonfiction book on the black press, I could have done that. So I was very clear in my own mind that this needed to feel like a story, not a classroom, not be didactic, not be polemical. People don't want to be preached at when they open a novel. John Gardner, who wrote The Art of Fiction, says that the job of a, a novelist is to create a dream. And so when you open a novel, page one, you enter the dream. And if a writer has succeeded at her, at her job, you don't wake up until the last page. So 
I want to make dream worlds embedded in history. Mm. That's my job. Okay. Mm -hmm. and I, I would. I, I would only um, I would only add um, that when I think of the word um, duty, I think of my grandmother who always said, "Do your work and do it well." Do your work and do it well. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that that's my own sense of responsibility in general with all that I do. Um, but I think also um, in, um, in thinking about the truth in writing, in thinking about what it means to, you know, be true to yourself, to tell the story you're supposed to tell, it, it, that's also about being careful with this beautiful, amazing language we've been entrusted with. And, and, and using that language with so much care and so much precision that we can express what we know to be true. I think also that truth is not always about was her dress red or was it blue? How did it really happen? I think it's about a truth that's deeper, uh, that we know when we've hit it. And we also know when we're not quite on top of it. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, you know, feeling your way to knowing that you're always being honest mm -hmm. in your writing in the profound sense um, is, is what's, what's so important. Can I just interject something? Because you said something sure. so important when you use the word feeling. I think looking back, um, going back to that why I didn't pursue an MFA, I was so afraid that if I went into a formal workshop, that that intuitive quality, mm -hmm. that feelingness that you talked about, would sort of be stamped out, mm -hmm. or it would be relegated to uh, a back burner, and and uh, other people would be held up their ways, mm -hmm. or their uh, a professor's notion of craft would somehow. Uh, squash my intuitiveness, mm -hmm. and I was very protective of that. I'm so glad mm -hmm. you brought that up. The, mm -hmm. the feeling is really important. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm asking one more question, but get your questions ready, okay? So, what inspires you to get out of bed, and what do you want to make sure you do every day? Well, I'm a mother. Uh, so it's them kids, <laughs> uh, you know, who are perfectly capable of making their own breakfast, but seem to like me to do it for them, uh, which is my joy. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it's, a, it's a privilege to have people to take care of. Uh, it's a privilege to be a, a parent. Um, and um, I feel um, that privilege, um, even though they suddenly lost their father, um, I felt that together we could carry on that, that memory and that that was a privilege too, to carry on everything that their father had given him and given me that actually could not be taken away from us. Uh, so I feel um, that uh, living that way uh, is what gets me up. The sacrifice of my parents and my ancestors gets me up in the morning. Um, what do I do every day? I can tell you what I try to do every day. Um, uh, I uh, believe that because we are survivors, because we've come this far, um, that it's important to take care of our temples uh, in the face of uh, you know, all of the stresses of any day and the particular stresses. Uh, there are, are a million joys that come with being black. It is a privilege to be black. But also, uh, that does not mean that we always stand in the space of the beloved in the larger society. So I think that taking care of our bodies, so I try to move it and I try to nourish it. And um, I try to also uh, just 
put good karma out in every way I can in my relationships with my students. I, I, I privilege also to be able to teach them. Um, uh, so I, I believe that that you know there are there are cycles to human relationships, um, and so you know you put out the best you have, and maybe it doesn't come back that day. Um, but I think it, it it is in continuous cycle. Lalita. Um, yeah, I I uh, I don't get as specific as all that. I um, I get up, and I believe that it's my responsibility to keep myself fit enough to fight the fight, mm -hmm. whatever that may be. Mm -hmm. um, and <clears throat> if that is through writing, then I will write. If that's through caretaking, then I will caretake. If that's through um, travel to bring myself some experience, then mm -hmm. that's what it will be. But I believe it's my responsibility to contribute, but that's just in a very broad sense but I have to be capable of doing it. So I do a lot of hiking and I do a lot of Pilates and I do a lot of whatever so that when my opportunity comes, I will be ready for it. Mm -hmm. I don't write every day, but writing inspires me and I'm not a mother yet, but I hope to be and I'm 40, so that's gotta happen soon. <laughs> um, I really hope to be, I, I see her or him kind of, in my mind's eye. So I'm kind of living for, um, for motherhood and these future novels. But you ask what we do every day. I listen to jazz every day. Mm. I am such right. a jazz head. <laughs> at, at least an hour. At least an hour. And I, I bear witness. I bear witness to the incredible love and to the, op and, and to the opportunities that I've been given. I've been given a lot of wonderful opportunities and, and love. And so I try to abide with the spirit of generosity. I try to be giving, get my jazz in. Um, I'm on book tour now, so this is not really working for me, but I cook at least one meal a day. Mm -hmm. I live on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, and I'm surrounded by great restaurants, as you probably are, because you're in Northern California, oh, yeah. which is why she doesn't cook, because she's in, like, foodie capital in Northern California. Um, but uh, I do try to, to keep the temple healthy for the reasons that Elizabeth enumerated and for the reasons that Lolita enumerated, being fit for the battle, being ready. Um, last thing I'll say is that recently Joyce Carol Oates tweeted that keeping busy, this notion of keeping busy, and I, I really worry about the little kids I see in, in my neighborhood in Manhattan because their parents mm -hmm. have them in something every day of the week. They're playing mm -hmm. cello, they're playing lacrosse, they're doing this, they're doing that. But anyway, Joyce Carol Oates' 140-character tweet said that keeping busy is uh, supposedly the secret to happiness in, in American culture, but is the death of creativity. Mm -hmm. She is absolutely right. Mm -hmm. So I am working very hard lately at not being busy. I was so touched mm -hmm. when you mentioned uh, Abby Lincoln, whose epigraph here, I wrote my dissertation on her, and we were very good friends. And if I talk too much about her, I'll start to cry. She passed in 2010. We were very close. And I remember asking Abby, do you, do you try to write songs every day? And she said, you don't have to go, if you're an artist, you don't have to go looking for it. You don't have to go, I don't look for songs, and you don't, you don't have to look for stories or plays or whatever. You make a home for the creative spirit to visit you, and it will show up. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And so that's what I'm about these days, mm-hmm. just kind of keeping peace mm-hmm. and not being mm-hmm. so busy that when the muse decides to visit, she finds that I'm not home or I'm not available. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yep. And the last thing from the moderator, I need five words from each of you about Citizens Creek, Jam on the Vine, and the Light of the World. Five words. Go buy it now. <laughs> there you go. That's okay, right. wait a minute, wait a minute. Lolita gets another chance. Uh, that, Lolita, those are my words. I, I, think, I think she was serious, actually. Yes. Wait, wait, wait. No, no, no. I'll say that. You say something else. Um, Native American meets African American. Okay. Cool. Spirited, love, triumph, democracy now. Mm, Okay. Um, That's a very hard question. Um, um, I know. Love persists through deepest grief. Ashe. Folks, questions? Hi, good afternoon. Hello. Good afternoon. In listening to all three of you, I heard and recognized deep, strong, gentle, powerful, dynamic voice. And clearly, as women, voice is important. So what has really given you comfort with your voice? And what do you advise those of us who are listening to do to receive comfort with voice. Mm. Hmm. Good I'll start with Big Mama again. Um, my, uh, my last partner, who I was with for 14 years, and she died the day after Christmas, so this has been mm. such a godsend. Uh, she just passed December 26th of, of 2014. Uh, when we had our first date in 2000 we talked for six hours we shut down this restaurant in the West Village and she said to me who loved you first which I thought was a profound question and it was my grandmother I mean I know mom and daddy loved me but my sense of really feeling loved this sort of ebullient love was my grandmother and I just could do no wrong so she made me very comfortable with my voice and if you didn't have a big mama like mine or parents or anybody in your family like my grandmother then my advice would be to, to dig a tunnel to your self-love. It's not easy, and you have to, like, hack away at it. But I think we find comfort. You find comfort always where there's love. So you have to love yourself. And, and I was blessed because I had a grandmother from the get-go who said, the world is yours. Take it. Mm. Well, that's so beautiful. And I, I, just, I really actually just want to, um, want to echo it. Um, uh, and also call the name of my grandmother, Winona Bond Logan. 
uh, who was similarly uh, the person in whose eyes I was, I was all right, you know. Um, and uh, and that, is, that is a comfort. That is a comfort. And so even though, you know, the, my, my journey as a, as a writer, I think that when I discovered that I could write poetry, which happened when I was in my early 20s, um, and I had done other kinds of writing. I'd been a newspaper reporter. I'd written short stories. I, you know, I was an English major. But I knew that I was uh, in the pocket when I, it, it wasn't easy, but it was natural. Um, but I think that still it was a long process to feel kind of in the entire sense uh, really comfortable with voice. But for me, the touchstone was always always my grandmother and I think that um, something that we can do for each other something that our sister friends can do for us something uh, that that we can just remember to put out into the world my father always says that when you speak uh, you may not think anybody agrees with you but someone is always listening no matter where you are someone is always listening so I think if we remember ourselves as being exemplary in some kind of way, whenever we speak, wherever we are, then putting something out into the world. You know, I, I loved on Twitter, um, uh, there was the um, uh, hashtag Black Love, uh, Black Friday, Black Love, mm-hmm. uh, um, where people were tweeting, they were trying to counter all of the negative media images of black people. And so the Twitter challenge was to tweet out beautiful pictures of beloved black people. And I just love looking through, looking through, looking through, looking through. And it just reminded me that there are so many spaces in which we can put something positive out there and make someone else feel comfortable. Um, I, (laughs) so I believe that you have to feel comfortable in your discomfort because I don't Mm -hmm. think you ever totally get there. Uh, and so you have to have some faith in your own voice and what is there, and you just have to keep doing the work to clarify it. That's all I got. <laughs> As I was listening to you, um, all three of you, it seems to me that um, you all have trouble with uh, having a concept of ideology. And as I think of literature, I think of um, a French um, white writer, um, Jean-Paul Sartre, who was a communist. Um, And even though he had this um, perspective of um, capitalism and and what it stands for, it it never affected his art in in any negative way. Um, Then you had um, Richard Wright, who um, thought that our literature should um, really talk about the situation of... um, black people and also um, socialist leanings. It never affected his literature in um, any negative way. He did that same thing with um, finding the humanity and and things. Then you had um, James Baldwin who confronted Richard Wright and said love was the answer. And even though he had this debate with him about what art should be, because of the conditions, everything Richard Wright, I mean, um, James Baldwin wrote was in confrontation with the, um, the status quo and, and how that affects your ability to love correctly, even, even so that he went and couldn't live here anymore. And then you have Ralph Ellison, who said he doesn't write politically. And he said he didn't write a political novel. 
But when you look at it, it is so profoundly political because of conditions at its, of the time. That's my, that's my response. That's my. Okay. Mm-hmm. Good afternoon, ladies. I just wanted, first, I wanted to say that I just wanted to thank you and praise you for your eloquently very quaint and passionate uh, speaking on your writings. And then my question is. Oh, uh, you didn't ask it. No. So. Well, I, I will respond. So, uh, I believe that when you write, your ideology is on display, and you take from it whatever you will. I think, I, I know that what I was saying is I don't start out saying that I'm going to force feed an ideology, but I do believe that if you read my works or if I read other people's works, I, I get a sense of where they are or what their positioning is or what it is that they're trying to say. But they leave it open enough so that I can draw my own conclusions and I hope that I leave my work open enough so that people can draw their own conclusions. Thank you. Your question? Yes. My question is, as a creator of telling truth, creating dreams and masterpieces of writing, what is the ultimate project slash writing you want your readers to take away with them as they get to know you through your, your works? Oh, I, I think that's a lovely question, but I don't have, uh, being given the opportunity to publish a book, I think is a tremendous gift, and I'm not going to push it even further and say, now, reader A, you take away this. Mm-hmm. I really do feel that uh, the sort of magic of art is that we get to show up to the table and, and take what we need to feed ourselves and, and get full, and I, won't, I don't want to ever dictate what that should be mm-hmm. for uh, a reader. I'm just really happy to, to have the opportunity to, to tell a story. Mm-hmm. And whatever people find, uh, whatever they find is germane to uh, their lives or their spirit or whatever, yay, I'm really happy about that. I just hope they find something. I do hope they find something, but I don't want to dictate what. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the interesting things about writing <clears throat> poems and sending them out into the world is that you don't often get the experience of uh, knowing where they land. Um, and somehow they continue to move around on their own. Um, and so um, one of the things that I've learned as a teacher um, is that interpretation you know, we can all be looking at the same piece of writing in a classroom, and there can be so many different ways into that writing, and I think that that's very exciting. I think that's how we know that art is a living thing. That said, I think that with all of the effort (laughs) that we put into precision, I do not like being misinterpreted. Um, You know, so I think that um, misinterpretation is one thing, but the beautiful living thing that happens when human beings encounter art Um, is as varied as we are and is really exciting to think that out of one piece of art um, we could have so many different portals into it and into a relationship with it. Yeah, and the the only thing that I would desire and the only thing that I would want is that somebody be willing to come to 
uh, something that I have produced with an open mind. Oh. That's all I ask. That's wonderful. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Hi. Do any of you guys belong to a writer's group? And if you do, how did you cultivate that group? Great question. I, um, I don't. And um, I have many, 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 many writer, poet, artist friends. I, I um, love creative people. But um, for me, for the most part, um, making the art has been a relatively solitary pursuit. Um, I show it sometimes when it's at a, a very, very late stage and when basically I, I know I've already done what I want to do. Um, and um, that said, I think that writers groups are a really, really, really great thing. And I have uh, taught in writers groups and workshops, been part of building the Kave Kanem Poetry Workshop for African American poets. Um, it, it seems kind of almost by accident that that just wasn't the way that my process um, developed. And I don't belong to one. I never have, but I think that they're great for, for people. Uh, to me, the hardest thing about writing, I'm very social. And the mm -hmm. hardest thing is that solitary aspect, mm -hmm. that sitting down and uh, you just have to bite the bullet and sit your ass down and, and, and write. It's very, it's very scary, but that's it. I, uh, I, I don't read my work aloud. I took that cue from Toni Morrison, who said, don't trust a performance. So I oh, don't read wow. until it's in galley. I, uh, but the, but then oh, wow. the other, the other wonderful, not for poets though. It's different. Yeah, that's she so never reads her stuff, and I, I like that because it should have a musicality from the page in the brain, and if it doesn't, so it's just it really is lonely for me because I don't even hear my own damn voice. <laughs> so that's just the way it goes. Okay, I have two. So I have, um, I actually have a black writers group and a white writers group. <laughs> <laughs> And the, it, it, they both formed serendipitously. Uh, the first was seven black women. Um, and we sort of got to the point of wanting some feedback, but not wanting to have to explain mm -hmm. hair passages. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, we just mm -hmm. didn't want to have to explain and go back beyond the starting line uh, with somebody that would get what we were mm -hmm. going after. Mm -hmm. um, and then I needed a course correction <laughs> of a white writer's group as well. But at any rate, the point is that uh, it is a very peculiar, both of them are peculiar writing groups in that we don't do um, work that hasn't gone all the way to completion. Mm. It's not fragments. It's not oh. chapters. It's not passages. It is when you have a draft of the complete work so that you mm. know... It, because we're all novelists, we were at when, when it started, um, and so you have to have the whole arc I would in order in order to understand. Mm -hmm. Because it's just too confusing right. yes. when you're writing a novel to mm -hmm. try to get critiqued on a little piece, mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. people are asking what came before and mm -hmm. what's going to happen next. Well, mm -hmm. what's the point? So um, I embrace the concept of a writing group and I actually believe that for many of us that concept is uh, maybe coming to an end but it has survived for almost 10 years and um, is Zizi Packer in your group? yes ZZ Packer is in the group uh. so at any rate it's a great concept mm -hmm. 
She's written about it beautifully. Ladies, yeah. thank you so very much uh, for your beautiful spirit and for the uh, richness of the work that you do. Um, I came here initially uh, thinking uh, that I'd spot uh, and see uh, Sister Lolita, whose works that I've read and, and think are profound and, and, and very, very rich. Um, I, didn't, I was not familiar with the other two women, and I am very, very thankful and happy that I was able to make it here and to be in your presence and to hear um, of your uh, works. So again, thank you. But the question that I have is um, the profound importance of your work uh, needs, I think, to be put out in other forms, in particular, given that our current youth are so visual in their approach to learning. Uh, and I'm wondering if the novels and the important material that you're creating and presenting, have you considered linking up with other artists, particularly the uh, filmmakers that are out there, to bring to the screen and to make more accessible to our youth the, the profound work that you're doing? Um, one of the sisters said some of this will not even end up in uh, social study books, and I tend to agree. But the, the work is so profound and so important that it be transmitted that I'm wondering if there's some collaborations that can be made with some of our some of our independent filmmakers that are out there from our tradition, from our communities, to bring to light these important um, historical accounts that your work so so richly uh, di display. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I like that. That's a, a great question. I'll just speak uh, very briefly. Uh, one only has so much energy. I have a wonderful uh, agent, and if it lands, it, it would be great. I would love to see all three of Lolita's novels be, mm -hmm. be films. I'm sure she'd like that, too. But um, as far as me pursuing uh, relationships or uh, to sort of make that happen, I would rather spend my time in archives and, and writing books because I love language, and to hell with where society or culture decides it's going. I like sentences. I like long, robust sentences with like 40 or 50 words, and I don't care that people are limited to 140 characters and people are doing LOL and LMB. It's, what, what, what society is trying to tell us to do is kill language. People wake up. Yeah. And I'm not, I'm not going to participate in the, in the murdering of language. So I, I, uh, I would rather uh, go and talk to young people about the importance of not shying away from books, of cracking books and reading. Uh, that said, Ama Asante, who directed Belle, is, it has fallen in love with Jam. Oh, and we are in the, we're talking. Um, and so who knows? But um, I, I am such an advocate for the written word and so frightened in a way, uh, not about books. Books will always be here. But I am frightened for youth who are, are so instantaneous with, with everything these days. And I just wonder what's, what will be for them if they don't revel in language. Yeah, very Well said. And I agree, I mm -hmm. completely, Eve's Bayou and Daughters of the Dust and Charles Burnett, Killer of Sleep and all those wonder, yes, we have a rich tradition mm -hmm. and it should proliferate, but, uh, but asking the writer, I think, to sort of, to foment those, those bonds and to, 
and to and I wrote the story. Isn't that enough? Now I got to put it on the screen. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Next question, please. Thank, Thank you, you ladies, so much. So Linda asked a lot of really interesting questions about what it means to be a writer, and I think it's very fascinating to ask ourselves what it means to be a reader, and I think it's a very individual and very fascinating question. So when I ask that to myself, to me it all comes down to perspective and having access to as many perspectives as I possibly can in this life. Um, so to me, the way that I get that the most, I find, is through historical fiction. So I was very excited to hear from you today. So you're all such very talented authors, and I'm curious why you chose, in many cases, to use historical fiction specifically versus maybe something like nonfiction that you've used in the past for these particular works that you're talking about. Yeah, I came to historical fiction. Um, actually, one of the impetuses is here today. So when I did a lot of my own family research, uh, and I came across the bill of sale of my great-great-great-great-grandmother, who was sold in 1850 for $800, um, and I kept stumbling across all of these wonderful stories. And I would tell them, I, wanted to, I don't have children of my own, but I tell them to my niece and my nephews, and <laughs> their eyes would sort of, yeah, that's really nice, Aunt Lita. And, <laughs> and so I said, this is what I need to do. I need to sit down and write this, and I need to write it in as compelling a way as I possibly can so that you really get into the lives of these people and their stories and bring them, breathe life into them. And that's how I came to write, period. Not just write, not, I just came to write. Because before then, I, I did not discover at age eight that I was going to be an author. Um, I didn't discover it until I was in my 40s. Um, so, and it was because the stories were profound. And now I, I just find a real, um, Fear that we're forgetting our past, and it's and it's mutating into something that is too silent and too sanitized and feels too comfortable, and isn't really true or authentic. And so that's why I initially got into writing historical novels. Mm -hmm. Completely, exactly yeah. what you said. And, and I just wanted to add that um, I think that coming out of um, the African-American tr tradition, and you said this earlier, I mean, there's so much there. There's so, it is an infinite wellspring. Um, so for me, it's more in my, in my poetry. Um, uh, you know, it, it goes many places, but to, to the historical, to stories that, you know, as we've been discussing, uh, mistold, lost, um, uh, the voices that wouldn't otherwise be heard. It felt like this treasure trove um, and, and that there would never be any lack of inspiration. Um, I think that also gets back to the gentleman's question about film. I mean, I think really what, what I hear and what, what I take from what you're saying is uh, a call for so many of our stories um, uh, and the dearth of our stories up there uh, for all to see. And that costs money, as we know, too. Yes. Mm -hmm. That's where film is particular. Mm -hmm. Last question. Great. Uh, thank you so much for having this event. I'm not from Baltimore. 
I've never been to this library, so I'm glad to be here and to make, uh, to make it out here. I'm glad you asked the question about reading. I don't, I'm not a writer, but I consider myself a good reader, mainly because when my family came from East Africa, uh, Somalia, we had to learn the English language. So it sounds like we know the language, but we really don't. And <laughs> unfortunately, unfortunately, my first uh, English teacher uh, picked Sula for me to read. Wow. It was really emotional because I've read that book over and over and over again. I'm 32, and I'm still reading it. And I don't understand half of it still. So I just wanted to ask you all, what books are you rereading? And what mm. are the challenges in your native tongue, which I assume is English, that you still, as writers, as poets, as essays, that you're still dealing with? Maybe it's not an immigrant issue. Good question. What a question Great that question. is. <laughs> wow. Can I start? I want to start with Sula, because Sula is, is actually one of my touchstones. Um, it's one of the most important books to me. Um, uh, I think that probably, um, how would I explain it? I think of all her novels, it's the poet's novel, uh, that incredible condensation that's in The Bluest Eye as well, but even more so in Sula. Um, I think that what she gets to, and this to Lolita's point about being uncomfortable with our discomfort, uh, and the way that, that, that Sula is that figure, I think, who is trying to teach us that, the way that she troubles questions of what is community and how do we or don't we fit into it, and of women's sovereignty, uh, the way she keeps that book on a timeline, um, which I think you know it is it is historical fiction. Uh, I, I you know I, I don't know if we would maybe quickly place it in that category, but it's awareness of history, you know the awareness in that book of what happened to Shadrach when he sees a soldier's head shut off, shot off in World War, War II, World War I. What happens to a community, the bottom? We've talked about land, right? When black folks are given the bad land and told it's the good land, but make something out of it. I mean, we, we could go on and on and on, um, but that's certainly a, a book that I uh, return to, along with the poetry of Lucille Clifton, uh, whose name we have to call in Baltimore. Yeah. She's, um, and, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a poet of profound philosophy and meditation. Uh, and the poems are economical, small, but you return to them over and over again. And I found that at many different stages in my life, they reveal more. It's astonishing. They feel like they have that infinite capacity. Um, I think that American English, um, because of the way that this is a country of immigrants, I'm going to use the term very, very broadly, who came here and were brought here in all kinds of different ways in different circumstances. All of that language has enlivened and reinvigorated and kept the English language alive. So I think actually American English is a, a fascinatingly mutating creature, uh, and it is a garden I love to play in because a lot of tongues are in it. And I think that that's a continual, daily, really interesting challenge in the listening work of being a writer. That was so beautiful and rich. Uh, continuing with the Toni Morrison tradition, uh, you ask what we read over and over. Uh, jazz is epigraphed uh, and jam. I love jazz so much that my characters meet, they, they meet Violet and Joe Trace which are the main characters in Toni Morrison's jazz. Uh, oh. That's how much I love Toni Morrison's <laughs> jazz. Uh, I love Toni, period, and I'm so happy we have had her on the planet for 84 years. Um, I've read it 27 times, and every time I teach, be it history 
or literature, I find a way to teach jazz. It's just, uh, it sings. It's, I think of all uh, 10 of her novels, 11 if you count the new one coming out next month, God Bless the Child. All 10 of her novels have these beautiful cadences, but it's something about that, the cadence of jazz that just makes my heart sing. And I read a tremendous amount of 19th century literature. I love Herman Melville. I love Nathaniel Hawthorne. I love, 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 love Edith Wharton. In fact, this is my Edith Wharton year. I'm reading all 38 books by Edith Wharton because I like long sentences. I really do. And I'm swimming against this new thing. How can, how can we get our sentences shorter? I'm, I'm trying to, you know, figure out a way to keep my 40 sentence, 40 word sentence, but make every word count. And I read song lyrics because I, I love music so much. And I find that, uh, maybe you all can relate to this, but sometimes I pick up novels and I finish 400 pages and I haven't felt one emotion. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I have decided life is too short. I'm not mm-hmm. going to persist yeah. with those books anymore. And musicians know how to do this. They know how, uh, they have the, the benefit of music, but even lyrically, in three or four minutes, they, ho- they know how to make you feel something. Mm. And so I find, I've been reading lyrics since I wrote my dissertation on jazz singers, but I find that reading lyrics and listening to a lot of music helps me bring an emotive power to, uh, uh, to my books. So long sentences and emotion, that's what I'm after. Mm. Yeah, the, um, so... I'm just copying here. Um, the the book that I have read the most it's it's Toni Morrison, with whom I have a I don't know her, uh, but I have a very distinct love hate relationship. Anyway, um, I love 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 her, and sometimes I hate 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 her, um, and mostly because I don't totally understand her. Uh, but her language is so amazing and incredible that I ultimately forgive her everything. (laughs) But I will never forget, I had read Beloved several times, and when I sat down to write my first book, I was doing it without the basis of uh, any academic or or any preparation, really, other than being uh, a consummate reader. And so I said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take three books that I love from my bookcase, and I'm going to read the opening paragraph to see how they grabbed attention. And that's what I'm going to go for in my book. And the first book that I cracked was Beloved. I sat down, and I said, well, that's a first sentence. (laughs) And I didn't get up from that chair until I'd finished the book. And that is power. So that's what just kept bringing me back to her again and again. I fall into her language. Beloved's mine. We all love Tony. Well, we have a book signing for Citizens Creek, The Light of the World pre-orders. Elizabeth's book comes out next month, April 21st, and Jam on the Vine. On the second floor, there's a reception. So we're going to meet all of y'all on two for a little light libation and say hello to the authors. Thank you so much. <laughs>